Welcome to the 206.com podcast. I am your host, Mark Morin, and you are listening to Diversity in Film, a 206 podcast series. This podcast series features in-depth interviews with filmmakers and industry experts discussing the topic of diversity in film. Look for episodes featuring director and activist Lin Chen, director and producer Emily Ting, executive director of the Northwest Film Forum, Vivian Hua, rapper Lex the Lexicon Artist, podcast host and film critic Isabella L. Price, world-renowned Disney film producer Don Hahn, director of marketing for Smart House Creative Amy Simon, film critic and podcaster The People's Critic Tim Hall, lifestyle blogger and film critic Aaron Hunley, actor, activist, and model Anna Lynn McCord. Thank you for listening to the 206.com podcast. Let's get to the interview. This is Mark Morin with the 206.com podcast. Uh, This is part of a special interview series focusing on diversity in film. In today's episode, I am speaking with Lynn Chen. Lynn, how are you today? Thanks for being here. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. First off, tell me who is Lynn Chen? What have you been up to? How'd you get into the business? A little bit of background on on who you are. Sure. Uh, So who is Lynn Chen? Well, (laughs) She uh, was born in a, on a cold winter's night, Christmas Eve, actually, in Queens. Yeah. I was born into a family of performers. So my mom was an opera singer for 35 years at the Metropolitan Opera House. My father was an ethnomusicologist, which meant he studied Chinese opera, actually. So I had the Western opera and I had the Asian opera, you know. I grew up playing piano. I was in the children's course at the Met when I was growing up. So I grew up on a stage and, and grew up, you know, I had my AFTRA card, you know, when I was six years old. I'm, I've always been used to being in front of people and showing them what I can do. And it's where I feel most at home and was always encouraged to write. I I didn't come from a very typical Asian family in the sense that my parents always were were pushing me to be an artist. That said, when I went to college, they were like, wait, you can't just be a theater major. (laughs) You have to do something else. And, And actually what ended up happening was, I ended up not majoring in theater at all because when I went to college, I suddenly was put in an academic situation of performing and I didn't like it. You know, I didn't like learning about the history. It just, to me, once I started to have to think about what I was doing, it stopped being fun. So uh, I ended up being a music and a women's studies double major, which actually I ended up doing nothing with either of those majors until I, <laughs> until I directed my, my film, which we'll talk about. It only took 20 something years for that to happen, but you know. But that said, you know, even though I studied, I didn't study theater in college, I still knew that that's what I wanted to do. It was always, there was something in my head that I always knew that as an artist, you have to see if there's other things that you can do. I think I had this very practical side of me, even though I was like a dreamer and I and I still loved like pursuing, you know, that this unattainable dream, what it felt like. I still was realistic, you know, I wanted to see if there were other things I could do. I think I was practical in, in a way that my father ended up being, because even though he was an ethnomusicologist, he ended up working in computers to support the family. 
so yeah, I, I wanted to see if there were other things I could do. And quickly I found out I didn't want to be doing other things. I worked at a school and I did a bunch of odd jobs for a few summers. But then suddenly I was like, you know, I'm going to save my money. I'm going to temp. I'm going to do whatever it takes to act. And qu pretty quickly I ended up doing, I was living in New York at the time. I did all the law and orders. I did a soap opera, all my children. And then I got my first movie, Saving Face, which was in 2005. And that movie, that movie really um, was a great calling card for me because it sort of established me where I am today in terms of being somebody who has been a part of the Asian American indie film scene. I'm very much, that's I guess where, where I work the most. That movie sort of put me on the map for that. And over the years, I've been sort of uh, doing everything from, I mean, I, I narrated Crazy Rich Asians. I was in Call of Duty, the, the video game. I have traveled with a punk band in DC. <laughs> like, I've done a lot of very different things, you know, amongst also like doing commercials and TV and things that most actors do. But I've always felt like somebody who never really had just one path. You know, somewhere along the line in the middle of all this, I also became a food blogger. And I, I actually hosted a podcast myself back before anyone was doing podcasts. Right. I was, I did a bunch of videos for BuzzFeed that have seen like tens of millions of views. These things, I think, all kind of prepared me for my transition into becoming a filmmaker, which honestly, I didn't, I didn't think I ever was going to be a director. I had always, you know, of course, being in the film industry had been approached to think about being behind the camera in terms of writing or producing, doing something that gave me some control. But it wasn't ever anything I was that into you know i i was right. like i'm i'm really happy being in front of the camera and being told what to do i, I don't need to sweat behind the camera <laughs> yeah, and also a totally I, different experience I it is know. completely but also there was a part of me that felt you know like i didn't go to film school who am i to do this but something that i realized and it wasn't until recently that i realized this is that it was i think the reason i thought that was because i didn't see any examples of asian female filmmakers really making a living doing what they what they loved you know it was all white men basically and so for me it, it wasn't even like it wasn't even an option i didn't even think about that when i thought to myself oh you know what i want to be in a richard linklater movie one day it yeah. wasn't it w i think it was more that i wanted to be richard linklater uh. <laughs> it was less that i wanted i mean Richard Linklater, call me if you're listening. Right, right, but like, right. you know, but but for me, I think I just didn't, I couldn't even identify that being a storyteller and being in control of that story was something that I desired until my movie, I Will Make You Mine, came into my life. And I wrote it and I produced it and I directed it and I starred in it. But all of these things happened I wouldn't say they fell in my lap, but it definitely was something that I had to seek. I, the opportunity presented itself and I had to work to make sure that uh, it didn't go away. I think you've almost started to answer my primary question of what does diversity in film really mean to you? It's funny, I've been asked pretty much the last decade, is it getting better for Asian Americans in film and television? And right. Each year that I was asked, it would depend on whether or not I had worked a lot that year or not. One year I'd be like, yeah, it's great right now. But I have to say that in the last few years, and, and I think this has to do also with the Me Too movement and the rise of social media and people demanding that their voices be heard. And in the past, you know, when I first 
when I was doing that movie in 2005. When it came to social media, there really wasn't any, and it was literally me going, I lived in New York at the time, I was going to bodegas with my postcards and leaving them, you know, in the, it, like for people and being like, can you please, you know, show my movie or can you please spread the word about my movie? I live in your neighborhood. I think that it was like a matter of, you know, the community lifting one another up. I still think that, like I said, I, I touched upon this before of being part of the Asian American film community. There are some pockets that are your core resources for how minority voices get heard. And those voices are starting, I think that, you know, over the years, it's really given us sort of like a breeding ground, a place to sort of play and practice and grow as artists and be nurtured in a way that I don't see those who don't have a small community to, I don't like to use the word mess up, but like right, right. to be an amateur yeah. in. Because there's definitely things where it's like, I don't know if we would have been ready for anything hugely mainstream, but because we had practice and the support for that, that's why I think we're able to get to the point now today where things have gotten a lot better and we can we can be in those rooms and feel like we belong in those rooms because we've worked really hard to get there and we're at that level right now. It's not like we were just thrown in and don't know what we're doing and just sort of, I mean, like, I'm sure there's plenty of people who do that where they are just thrown in and they just fake it. But like, I think it's always been hard as a woman and as a woman of color to feel like I'm not being handed something Right. And that like, I don't deserve to be someplace. And if I am someplace, I have to work doubly hard, triply hard mm -hmm. in order to prove that I belong there. And that's a lot of pressure. Right. That's a lot of pressure. And it makes you feel like if you mess up, which is just a part of being an artist, it's such a huge part of being an artist. Yeah. It, it makes you feel like you can never go back. And so I think that's changing these days where we see that not only can you come back, but your vulnerability is actually what will let other people find you right. and relate to you and listen to your story. Yeah, that's a really good point that you bring up. A couple different things I wanted to touch back on that you just mentioned. You talk about how there's been kind of a building up of, I guess in a way you could say credibility of the Asian American community, which has led to bigger and better things. Like one thing that's almost been unavoidable in my conversations on this series is talking about crazy rich Asians. And some people say, oh my gosh, that just came out of nowhere. And it's just this amazing thing. But you actually just got me thinking, no, it didn't come out of nowhere. That was probably decades of hard work of people doing things and building relationships and just making films and making mistakes and not doing the right thing and learning. So for that film to eventually become what it was and what I consider it to be like a real, I guess kind of a milestone or kind of a, I don't know, I don't know if I want to call it a turning point, but a really significant movie that's, that's really impacted the industry. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, I've been thinking about Crazy Rich Asians forever, I've been probably longer than most people because I narrated the book. So even before I remember when I narrated it and I announced it on social media, like I'm narrating a book for, for Random House called Crazy Rich Asians. All of my friends were like, oh, no, Lynn, what are you doing? What have you done? Crazy Rich Asians. What does this mean? I'm like, it's a really fun book. I think you'll like it. So I've known about it for a really long time. And watched uh, as Kevin Kwan, the author, you know, shopped it and brought it around and made decisions about it like any other creative does. And yeah, it really inspired a lot of people, I think, because for the first time, a lot of people 
took Asian Americans seriously. And it's just, like sad that it's just because of money. But like at the same time, it is like there's things like facial recognition, just in general, like the fact that like everyone in it is you could like say their name and people would know who they are. Those are amazing things and not to be taken lightly. But that said, the pressure after that what follows is still like i think this happened you know after slumdog millionaire also yeah. Oh, yeah you know that said like i don't know how long it's going to be until we don't have to keep having this conversation right. you know? like I, I don't know if that's going to happen or when that's going to happen but i would love to feel like any movie that comes out that has Asian faces in it is not going to be compared to Crazy Rich Asians. Right, exactly. You know? So it's it's strange. I mean, like, when I did Saving Face in 2005, everyone was comparing it to Eat, Drink, Man, Woman because it was a right. gay movie about Asians and my movie was a lesbian movie about Asians. And of course, like, I see the parallels, but, like, it's, it's just weird because, you know, like, when a sci-fi movie comes out, they're not like, and this is like Star Wars. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, no one would, no one would do that but so yeah it, it's still like the wild wild west i think right no that's a good point because i think people because there's only so many examples they immediately point to one thing that they're familiar with and i think that's really one of the goals that the industry should be looking for is there should be volumes of examples for people to look at now the other thing that you had touched on earlier that i wanted to come back to you talked about how the asian american film community is really kind of a family of filmmakers now one of the things that i've noticed using Crazy Rich Asians as that landmark moment is there's been a few films that have come out that have really caught my attention, like one being The Farewell, which mm -hmm. I had actually labeled as my like number one favorite movie of the year last year for my website. And then also a film you're very familiar with is Go Back to China. You were in the movie, and mm -hmm. we'll talk about that in a minute. And for me, those two films, the one commonality is they're very authentic stories. And you know, mm -hmm. Emily Ting was the director of Go Back to China, and she also made Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong, which to me, same thing, very authentic, very personal stories, which you don't really see that type of filmmaking in the big blockbusters, you know, the tentpole films that you see out there. And to me, that's what's really getting my attention as has been a little bit of the shift is those type of films are getting noticed more as well as being the availability on streaming platforms as well, I think has given that a bit of a push. Yeah, it's been wonderful that people can watch these movies. You know, before it really felt like it was at the mercy of a film festival where people would see it and then afterwards, hopefully it would be out on DVD and hopefully you'd be able to buy it maybe like six months later. So streaming really has changed that a lot. That said, like now there's just so much to watch. It's hard to get eyeballs on things. So it's a matter of like getting press and getting people excited and having people, you know, want to click on your thumbnail. It's a, and I'm familiar with that world from having done like BuzzFeed and things like that and oh, yeah. that it, it feels on the one hand like exciting because anything could happen something could go viral and you don't you never know but then on the other hand it feels a little bit like you're at this you're, you're a slave to an algorithm right. and figuring out like some sort of trick to get people <laughs> to watch your movie instead of like it just automatically just being a good movie and people seeing it I think that's always been the case with art, you know? Like, just because something's awesome does not mean that everyone will end up either um, relating to it or wanting to see it or being able to see it, you know? Right. There's things that's, that lie in obscurity for one reason or another you can't really say. So it is, it you know, so much of the entertainment industry is about luck and 
things lining up perfectly. And it, it does feel a little bit like playing the lottery over and over and over again. <laughs> now, I'd mentioned Go Back to China. You worked with Emily Ting on that film. Tell me a little bit about that experience. I loved working with Emily on that movie. It's funny, I said this to her recently because I've only known Emily now a few years since we made that movie, but I feel like I've known her my entire life. I just like can't imagine ever making another movie without her because she's <laughs> such an amazing filmmaker, uh, not only a director and writer, but also an incredible producer. Such an incredible producer and, and friend. She's a wonderful friend. But I didn't know Emily before she cast me and go back to China and she just offered me the part. The way that came about was I actually saw It's Dirty Tomorrow in Hong Kong because my friend Jamie Chung's in it and Jamie had tweeted it out and I just happened to watch it and I remember thinking afterwards, who's Emily Ting and why don't I know her? Because like I said, we're a close-knit community and I felt a little insulted that there was this Asian female filmmaker and that I like had never met her before. I was like, what is going on? Then sure enough, the universe provided. The next day I get an email minutes from our mutual friend Dave Boyle and he said, hey, Emily Ting wrote a new script and she wants you to be in it. Wow. And I was like, I don't even need to read the script. I'll do it. But I did read it and I did love it and I did relate a lot to it. And when I found out that Anna Akana was going to be playing my sister and I found out that we would be traveling to China. I mean, it was a no-brainer. I like right. automatically like I, I got to be there, of course. And so I'm the and I have to say the experience of making that movie was really a very professionally fulfilling one because I not only got to do a movie that I cared a lot about, but I also got to go back to China. Literally, <laughs> I hadn't been there since I was in high school. So to go as an adult and to be, you know, like these moments when you're like by yourself processing who you are as a right, person, right. you know, and thinking about who you used to be the last time you were in a place and being able to do that, like without any distraction other than like work, you know, but on my days off, I just would like sit in my hotel room in China and just think about who I was. And that was like such a gift. It was it was really like, very, it was a very special thing for me to be able to do that. And so like, I'm really happy that I was able to go, especially like before everything changed in Hong Kong, like everything has changed right, right. You know, yeah, since, since we shot it. Was there differences that you saw in how films were made during that shoot versus all the stuff that you've made in the States? Well, the crew was Hong Kong and they traveled with us. For the most part, it was pretty similar, but that's because they were doing SAG after rules for me and for Anna Akana because we were both SAG after us. So because of that, they had to still stick to union rules. Otherwise, I think it would have felt a little bit different, especially with like the hours that you work and the breaks right. that you have to take and the turnaround time, all of those things would have been different. But because we had the protection of our union, it felt pretty similar other than like some people saying lines in Cantonese. <laughs> like, you know, otherwise it felt it felt very, very, very similar and very, I, I kind of love that. I love that there was this universal language right. that like no matter where you go I mean it's my first international set but like still yeah. I just like loved that like I still knew when they were saying you know cameras rolling like <laughs> and the sound was speeding like I could tell that it was all the same like you're there's something about like when as an actor when you hear those words your body starts getting ready right. like to act I just love that you know it could be in a different language and you could still <laughs> you'd still be there 
Now, in that movie, you were able to work with uh, Mr. Richard Ng, mm -hmm. a legendary actor. What was it like working with, with him on set? Oh, he's fun, but we could never find him. He was always <laughs> off smoking a cigarette or, or doing something. So he didn't hang out too much, but he's a really funny guy. And, you know, he's a veteran. He's And he's famous also. <laughs> People would just want to, like, take their photo with him. But, yeah, it's pretty fun, like, being able to work with, like, these legends always. Like, usually playing my parents, like, in different movies. <laughs> now that I've gotten to work with some people who I've grown up watching. That's always been, like, the coolest thing about Absolutely. being an actor. Now, working with Emily Ting, where she was directing and you being the actress, now on I Will Make You Mine, she's one of the producers. So mm -hmm. was, there, was there much of a transition between you and her as far as a relationship between those two movies? Well, yeah, I mean, like, Emily, it's funny. She's, like, one of the most organized people. Like, I... I already, as a director, I was like just leaning on her a lot to just like have her tell me what to do. And then as a producer, I was leaning on her a lot to tell me what to do. It's just like different things that I had to do. You know, she, it's, she, we ended up using a lot of her crew from uh, Go Back to China, like my DP and my production designer. And, you know, we like used the same colorist to the same, you know, like we just shared a lot of thing, resources with one another because of that. And I actually feel really lucky that last year I got to go on the festival tour for uh, Go Back to China because Emily had just had her twins and Anna couldn't do a lot of the film festivals. So I ended up going, both of us knowing full well, Emily and I knowing that like I would probably return to the same festivals the next year for my movie. So it was like to cultivate those relationships a bit. I mean, neither of us knowing that there would be a pandemic and everything would be canceled. I feel really lucky that I got to go have like that experience so recently because I, I do love going to film festivals and meeting people. Let's go into the film a little bit that we've been leading to. I Will Make You Mine. It had a little bit of a theater release, didn't it? Before everything was shut down or no? No, actually. So we were supposed to have world premiered at South by Southwest. Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. where we were supposed. And then South by got canceled. And then subsequently, every film festival that we were supposed to play at also was either postponed or canceled. Right. Okay. But we had already sold the movie theatrically, nor not theatrically, for video on demand through Gravitas Ventures right before the South by announcement. So, you know, I felt very lucky that we had a place that I, but I, you know, obviously would have liked to have done my South by Southwest premiere. A couple of questions about the film itself. I just watched it a couple nights ago and I loved it. I thought it was great. So thank you for making such a great debut film. I have not, I'll be honest with you, I have not watched the first two films in the, I guess what we're calling an unofficial trilogy. So can you yes. tell me about that a little bit? I Will Make You Mine is the third movie in a trilogy. The first two movies, Surrogate Valentine and Daylight Savings, were both directed by Dave Boyle and they both centered around Go Nakamura, who's an actual musician from the Bay Area who plays a version of himself. Right. And I was in the the first two movies as a love interest for Go, and each movie ended with a cliffhanger ending. And in the second movie, two other women were in it, and we were always left wondering at the end of the second movie, who does Go choose? And Dave had always said when we went to different film festivals, this is going to be the lowest budget trilogy ever made. <laughs> so I, I believed him. A few years ago, we were hiking and I just very casually asked him, you know, when are you going to do that third movie? And he said, I'm never going to do it. And when he said that, my heart broke because I 
wanted to find out what happened, but also because I wanted to work. And <laughs> I just wanted to, it was like, it was a universe that I really loved being a part of. It's black and white, it's about music. You know, I, I really love Go and Dave and working with both of them and it's a very casual environment. So I asked him, you know, what if I did it? I don't know what I meant by that. I think I meant like, what if I like help make it happen? And he said, okay, well, yeah, I'll let you direct it. When he said that, I just knew it was an opportunity that I couldn't let pass up. And I was like, I got to at least try, you know, because I was going, I was approaching 40 and I felt like, or I just turned 40 and I felt like I'd always heard that when you turn 40 as a, as an actress, you just get put out to pasture. And I was just sort of like, I'm not willing to do that. (laughs) I want to at least try. Like, like if Dave, this very established award-winning filmmaker wants to help me make a movie, I'm going to take him up on it, you know, like, I'm going to at least try to see where we go with this. I'll try First, I'll try writing a draft. And if he's like, this is horrible, then we will never speak of this again. (laughs) But what ended up happening was I ended up writing the draft in a week and I sent it to him and I'd never written a feature film draft before. And we surprised all of us that, you know, he was like, yeah, this works. And a few months later, we decided that we would self-fund it through Kickstarter and uh, make the movie, and we did it. It was a year later, right before Thanksgiving, that we finished making the movie. And so a lot of it was, it came from this passion of wanting to not only finish the story that he had started, but also, like, I wanted to ride off of this momentum, of this belief that which is also a theme in the movie, which is that it's never too late to fulfill your dreams or to start a new path in life. Even as you get older and you think that, you know, the dream is over. In fact, it's just beginning. And I needed, I needed to hear that for myself. You know, and so a lot of, a lot of the themes in the movie dealing with aging and art and, and being a woman and, and, questioning everything in your life and how it's where you are today and where you were and where you'll be all those themes I needed for myself and so that's why I was pushing so hard for it to get made and so I'm really happy it was such a personal film and and I'm really happy that this was my first going back to the original idea of this story was there intent of why all three movies were done in black and white so the first two movies were black and white because Dave wanted to uh, to make sure that it went quickly. He didn't want to spend a lot of time gelling lights and setting up. He wanted it to be a small crew, very nimble and like just do it. And he also thought things looked great in black and white. And so because of that, you know, my movie, even though it's the third in the installment, it can still stand alone. And so for a split second, Bill Otto, who DP'd the first two movies, he and I had a conversation like, Maybe it should be in color, probably easier to sell. And also then, you know, it would make sense because I'm telling the story from the female perspective this time. I took the three characters and I made them the the main attraction. It would make sense, you know, like the Wizard of Oz, you know, we go through (laughs) the other, the other, the door and it's all in color and it's all female. It ended up, I ultimately said to myself, listen, I'm never going to make a black and white movie ever. (laughs) Like, why would that ever happen? I got to take this opportunity. Plus, like, I need it to have that through line to the first two. Even if you've never seen them, I still want to have like 
if somebody does decide to go back and watch the first two if they hadn't seen it and if you have seen the first two i like want them to be like okay this is part of that same world you need that satisfaction it's like when you go to like some disney thing and there's a fake mickey you're 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 upset i didn't want people to be upset (laughs) one of the things that i really liked was the fact that it was in black and white because it's such an intimate story between the characters i feel like using black and white enhance that so I'm glad that you decided to go that route and I also feel that it definitely the movie does stand on its own you know obviously I did I haven't seen the first two yet I will but uh, you know I I don't feel like I missed out on anything by watching this one first it just made me want to get to know these characters more and see what that backstory was I would say job well done with that thank you yeah you're welcome now how much you said you you'd never written a feature like this before how much of your initial writing ended up in the final film like was there very much as far as changes or was it pretty much a to z from script to film it's pretty much there except for the um parts in the beginning and the end i think got changed around in other drafts and also when we edited things got moved around a lot just because there's three different characters so like we would just move things around so that the audience could see certain people quicker so that they weren't jarred you know 20 minutes into the movie like who is this person (laughs) so so we did move things around quite a bit but mostly that first draft that I did is pretty close to the feel of what I what I intended to write and you know of course like a lot of things had to change when we'd get like a new location or depending on like who we could get for a scene I would shift it around uh, who the actor was or what the location was what were maybe some challenges that you ran into on just getting this film done You know, like with any film, there's always fires to be put out. And as an actor, you know, I've been on so many film sets before and I've always like kind of seen a little bit of it going on. You know, like I see like the wild eyes of the producers like (laughs) running about in the background. And as a director, I think that even though there were those same things, because I've been witness to so many of my directors keeping it cool during those times, I knew that that's exactly what I had to do. I had this very zen-like quality about it because I knew there was nothing worse as an actor than to see your director freak out, you know, (laughs) to be like, what are we going to do? Like, it really takes you out of trusting them. Even if like there was a, you know, if even my stomach was tied up in knots, like (laughs) the day I came to set and... I didn't know where my DP was and it turned out he had gotten sick and like, they were like, it's okay. (laughs) He's gone home. We're getting another AC guy coming in. Your AC Carl, who ended up actually DPing the second half of the movie, so it all was fine. But he's like, your AC Carl was going to (laughs) do it today. And I was just like, all right. Okay, great. I mean, what are you going to do at that point? You know, like, you're not going to be like, no, tell them to come back. (laughs) None of that can happen. Like, you know, when when locations fall through or when things happen, it's just you automatically go into fixing mode. That's what you have to do. It's like you're racing against the clock. I'd say the hardest part for me that I wasn't expecting, because all these things I was expecting, I I knew all this as an actor being on so many sets that that would happen. The part I didn't expect was the emotional turmoil that would occur afterwards. Because that part, nobody sees. You're by yourself in the editing room. And what is the hardest thing, I think, for any director, and I've since learned that this is a very common thing, but I didn't know this, is seeing your what you, what you envisioned for the first time and realizing you didn't it didn't translate exactly. I don't know, maybe as if I make more movies, <laughs> this will change. But I don't think you ever get exactly 
what you first envisioned, okay. like in your head, even though you're on set right. and you're watching it happen and you got the performances you wanted, even then, like when you're sitting there watching it and you've compiled them all together and watched them get cut and pasted together, I, I don't think it's ever exactly the magic that you thought it was going to be. Maybe it's better right, and maybe right. it's worse, but it's not exactly like that. Right. And so because of that, there's this jarring moment of like, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> like I wasted everybody's time. <laughs> this was a horrible mistake and we will never make this mistake again. <laughs> Ultimately, you know, you have to just get over that. I think the frustration comes from, you know, it, it's not like in acting when you just get another take or it's right. not like in writing where you just rewrite the scene. With this, you can't just like get everyone together and refilm it. If that doesn't work, you have to make it work. You have to figure it out. And that responsibility feels so huge. But what if I can't find a clip that makes it work? What if I, and especially on an indie film like this where you can't film to your heart's content and get all this coverage and just try a million different things where you only have four takes of a close up and none of them are working with what you've put out, you start to freak out a little bit. <laughs> you really start to doubt yourself. And so I wasn't prepared for that. Those were the things that I, really had to do some therapy and journaling over. And I did not think that that was going to be part of this, but it was actually a huge part of it. And it was a big part of how I think it will affect me in the future going into directing and making sure that I get all the different things. <laughs> because I, even when in your head, you're like, that is exactly how I pictured it. Right, right. When you're sitting in, down with your editor and you're looking at the footage, you could have done a few different other takes. <laughs> right, Is there like a moment that you can look at during the creation of this film where you're like, that was just my favorite, happiest moment of the entire production? Oh yeah, for sure. There is a moment when Go and Ye Ming are writing the song. There's two moments. It's every moment that they're like writing the song together. So in the movie, yeah. they're they're writing a song together and I just let some of it was scripted and to hear Go and Ye Ming, who are not professional actors, right. say my lines and just sell them. You no, know, like I, as a, as a former musician, it was so satisfying because for me, I think the biggest pet peeve of mine for the last 20 years as a musician has been watching movies where people are writing a song and they have it perfect <laughs> in the first five minutes. They're like, they have all the lines memorized for some reason. They're singing in perfect harmony. And I'm just like, ah, you're like ruining it for us all. You make us think it has to be perfect. And I get it why you're doing it, but they're really frustrating me. And so to see Go and Ye Ming music together in a way I felt was very natural right. and organic was so satisfying to me a lot of it was written but a lot of it was also improvised and I every time I watch them I get so happy because there's I can't write like <laughs> goes what goes playing on the guitar he had to bring that to it and so like th those are things that like you don't get to see until you bring the actual talent in and watch them you know unfold their magic and then you're just like it's like it's like a chef with ingredients and it's like ah great I'm so glad I bought this paprika because this paprika is really gonna make it shine and it was worth every penny. Now in your writing were you mindful of creating that or did that just kind of end up being a byproduct of making the film? 
Um, I did write in some stuff, and this is where my music background came in handy because, like, I understood the language that they would be using. You know, like it wasn't like there were some days that I show up on set and be like, "All right, you're gonna say the lines as this," but then like riff off into this world, and then I, as a musician, could show them what I meant for them to be doing. It wasn't just like a pure improvisation, and so I think that that gave them some structure because otherwise you just like go flying off into like some <laughs> some world and you, we don't know where we gone or how to get back that was so satisfying for me you know like it was really fun for me to be able to utilize that that part of my brain I actually was saying to my husband because he and I are gonna work on another script together I was like I want all my movies to have music in it like all my movies to have musicians because there's something about musicians they're just such natural artists obviously but like there's something about like a internal rhythm that you have to have and like an ear that you have to have and I think that's very comparable to a good actor there's like something you can't teach you can't just say lines or you know you're just watching a robot what makes an actor a watchable actor is watching them take something from inside and bring in that rhythm their own personal rhythm into something and musicians all have that they cultivate it and they practice it actors they don't really get to practice that as much because they react to other actors and depending on what other actor you're with that's what's happening you know so like to see somebody who's so strongly themselves like a musician and then bringing that to a role was yeah i just feel like musicians are where it's at cast musicians. So going back to the original topic of diversity, one of the things that I'm learning from our conversation today is I really feel like community is a big part of where growth is coming from. I will say that I intentionally cast a lot of members of my community for this movie. That was very intentional, not only because I know and trust them and I know what they're capable of, but also because I'm just really tired of watching movies where I don't see faces that look like mine. And I was also, I was really conscious of wanting to show, especially when it comes to Asian women, women who exist in the same universe who are very different, who are all Asian, but are not related to each other. They're not like sisters fighting over what are we going to do about grandma or or like, you know, or this one guy or there's no like family drama that ties them together. It was important to me because as an Asian American actress, you know, somebody who walks into these rooms, audition rooms, and I see my Asian friends, I know we're different. But and, and the casting directors know we're different and probably the people making it know we're different. But audiences don't yet. They don't know that we're different. They think we're like interchangeable. And every time I hear somebody say to me like about a role, just cause she's Asian, they're like, why didn't you get that? It's like, oh, no. you wouldn't, you're like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask Scarlett Johansson that even though she's like taking all the Asian parts, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, it's just sort of like, cause we're different. And so I wanted to showcase that. Right, right. And and that's important to me. Like, and that's why I love being part of this community because I know that my community is we're united, but we're all unique. And I love that we can count on one another. Like there's no question that we can just count on one another. It's not like calling in favors. It's like, hey, let's get together and like have a potluck. <laughs> you know, like this is for all of us. You know, it's not just like you doing me a favor and then I'll do you a favor. It really is like we're here together to play. 
that's really huge. And, and watching the movie, I got that sense too, that each of the three women, very distinct people, very distinct personalities, very distinct struggles in what they were going through in life. And it, like you said, it wasn't just about, hey, we're all here together for this one thing. There was a common thread that they all had some type of a relationship with Go. But outside of that, they were very unique individuals. So that really came across. I'm glad that's something that you were looking to do. Now, Go also was a very unique person as far as the Asian male is typically perceived in Hollywood films because you know he wasn't the martial arts guy and no (laughs) villain and you know he was a real human being with a lot of flaws a lot of emotions and a lot of artistry and I don't want to give away the ending but there's a there's footage that's seen while the credits roll that's just fantastic and I just love that it's a it's a bit of a callback to something he talked about earlier in the movie as well. And I just love that you put that in there. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that the movie still ended for the fans of the trilogy mm-hmm. to that still ended with Go's story. So like I wanted to finally answer who he ends up with and you will find out. And I wanted to make it his story again. And so that was very intentional. Lynn, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been wonderful getting to know you and getting to know what makes you take as a filmmaker. And I really hope that everybody watches the movie. Again, that's I Will Make You Mine. You can go to IWillMakeYouMine.com. I'll have these all linked on the, the website page for this podcast episode. Any final thoughts you want to add, Lynn? No, I just want to say thank you so much for this platform and for giving a voice to people like me, especially first-time filmmakers. So thank you. Thank you very much. This is Mark Morin with 206.com, the 206.com podcast. Thank you very much for listening. There it is. Episode one is in the books. Thank you for listening. Head on over to the podcast page on 206.com for all the links and info for Lin Chen and her film, I Will Make You Mine. Next week, episode two of the Diversity in Film podcast will feature producer and director Emily Ting. As you heard in this interview, Lynn and Emily have worked together on both Go Back to China and I Will Make You Mine, so now we get to hear her stories as well as her take on the diversity topic. By the way, the music you are listening to right now is the instrumental version of Party Hop, one of the latest songs from Lex the Lexicon artist, who you can hear on episode four of this podcast. Check out her new album, Alter Ego, on thelexiconartist.com. Once again, thank you for listening to the 206.com podcast, Diversity in Film Interview Series. 